MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. Fighting soldiers from the sky. You know, when we think about music from the 60s, the Ballad of the Green Berets doesn't really come to mind, nor at all. Yet the top single of 1966 wasn't the Rolling Stones' Painted Black or the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. It was the Ballad of the Green Berets, a hyper-patriotic tribute to the Army Special Forces by a Vietnam veteran, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. Since then, we haven't heard all that much about the Green Berets, their luster, so to speak, having been dimmed by Vietnam, overshadowed by air power, Marines, infantry, and CIA counter-terror ops, and surpassed by the Navy's SEAL Team 6, who of course executed Al-Qaeda kingpin Osama bin Laden. But the Army Special Forces are still very much in action, and still fulfilling one role has not been heard of much, and is not much different than it was in the early days of the Cold War when a super-secret detachment in West Berlin was made responsible for, among other things, sabotaging railroad lines in East Germany in the event of a Soviet invasion. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine mired in stalemate and Vladimir Putin making dire threats against the West, I thought it was a good time to introduce Spy Talk listeners to James Stechkow, who spent 23 years in the Army, much of it in top-secret Green Beret cover assignments, before shifting to the CIA for years, where he operated out in the espionage wilds as a case officer under non-official cover. Stedskow is also an author. His latest thriller is Dead Hand, set in the aftermath of a Russian victory in Ukraine when very bad things start to happen. James Stedskow, welcome to Spy Talk. You bring up a couple of subjects in your new novel, Dead Hand, uh, which I'm going to get back to, uh, two subjects of particular interest to me, the Green Berets in Europe and and Knox, non-official cover operations officers. Uh, you've done both of those things. You've been a Green Beret, uh, as we have call it, Special Forces, Army Special Forces guy, and you've been a CIA officer uh, and have been in Knox. So we want to talk about a couple of those things. But first of all, Let's define what a knock is. Tell us, tell us about. It. Well, first off, Jeff, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad I have the invitation, and good day. <laughs> Thank you. Non-official cover guys are the CIA agents that actually work in the field undercover, um, under a cover that does not involve the U.S. government. Uh, there are CIA officers that work in embassies. Generally, they uh, have a cover of being oh anything from a consular officer to a press attaché to a general service officer. In other words, a lot of CIA people operate as diplomats undercover. Correct. Correct. They've got a black passport to protect them. Uh, generally, if they are arrested doing something spooky overseas, they just get sent home. Non-official cover guys, though, don't have that luxury. They are 
generally working, well, they could be working as anything. They could be a businessman, they could be a humanitarian, they could be an archaeologist, um, anything. But they also generally do not work with a U.S. passport. Um, some do, but very few. And bad part about that is if they get arrested doing something spooky, that generally means jail time. Yeah, it's high risk. Uh, I read in one review of your book that uh, you never wore a uniform in your decades of experience with the Green Berets and CIA. Well, that's not quite true. Uh, I did. I spent 23 years in the Army, and I spent about three of those years in uniform, maybe four. So the majority of my time uh, was out of uniform. Well, we have that in common. I was a case officer in the Army, as you know. Uh, briefly uh, in Vietnam, never wore a uniform. I was undercover as a Defense Department guy. Now, you, fascinating to me, you were in a Special Forces deep cover unit in Berlin. Tell us about that. That was one of the more interesting periods of my life. Um, during the Cold War, in the middle of the 1950s, uh, the U.S. Army came to the realization that uh, if they had some special forces people operating inside of East Germany, because that's where Berlin was, that they would be one up on the game if a war started. So in 1956, they established a small unit, about 90 guys, and put them forward in West Berlin, which was occupied by the Allied forces, the English, the French, and the Americans. So from 1956 to 1990, we had this classified unit that was in Berlin and was prepared to go to war inside Russian and East German territory uh, from the from the start. Mm-hmm. The mission was kind of, well, some people would have called it suicidal. Basically, our mission was if the Russians started World War III, if they attacked in the West, The mission of the Special Forces guys in Berlin was to slow the Russians down, Mm -hmm. to give the Allies out in West Germany and Western Europe time to prepare for their defense, to fight back. So our mission was to give 24 to 72 hours of time to allow that to happen. And how how, how is a small Green Beret unit going to slow down a a massive Russian invasion? What were you... you assigned to do it was only about you know a million and a half russians against a hundred americans uh, yeah that's those are equal odds aren't they um, but anyway um sabotage uh, one of the primary unique factors about berlin was that the railway from poland from russia all came into the area around Berlin. And so there was what was known as the Berliner Ring, uh, which surrounded the city. Very close to the city, but it was inside East German territory. So one of our missions was to sabotage that railway, which would slow down Russian reinforcements. They would not be able to move their people fast enough. Our other missions were to hit power plants, uh, radio stations, leadership targets, command centers. Um, 100 guys can do a, a, 
a heck of a lot of damage in a short period of time. Um, we anticipated that it would be a very difficult mission. I'm not sure, you know, you can't say because it never happened, but um, we probably would not have survived very long, but there you go. The Russians, we do know after the fact, were extremely concerned about the presence of their special forces unit. They suspected we were there. Uh, so one of their primary goals was to eliminate us at the very beginning. And so we had plans for that, too. Hmm. Now, in a very weird anachronism over the last couple of years, we've got a, we've got a war going on in Europe. <laughs> it still kind of stuns me that we have a large-scale infantry and artillery and, and uh, mechanical um, uh, forces up against each other in, in, in the heart of Europe or close to the heart of Europe in, in Ukraine. And there's talk of, you know, Russian invasion and, and uh, part of your plot in dead hand is uh, involves a Russian invasion of Europe uh, once they have been victorious in Ukraine. P- putting that aside for a moment, um, uh, of the, uh, the prospect of a Russian victory in Ukraine. Um, is Special Forces very active now in a kind of an anachronistic way of preparing for a Russian invasion? Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't call them an anachronism. I, I cannot speak to the actuality of what's going on in Eastern Europe because, like you, I am still bound by non-disclosure agreements. Um, but what I can say is Special Forces has trained to operate in the backyard of the enemy force. They also trained to work together with allied forces, which could be Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, um, Ukraine, for example, to train them and to help them to prepare to resist the Russians. We have a special forces group that is specifically oriented against Europe. That's the 10th Special Forces Group. And they are partially in Europe now. They are stationed there. One battalion of about, uh, about six, 700 people. And then there are two battalions in the United States, which can move very quickly. So I will say that uh, the people that are there, 10th Special Forces Group, have been preparing for this. They've been anticipating the Russian moves for a long time, and they will continue to do so. Beside the sabotage activities, which is in extremists, should conflict break out in, in the Baltic region, special forces have other responsibilities in the region, right? They do. Um, I mean, counterterrorism is one of them, but that that is um, that is receding. Probably their biggest mission right now is to work with the Allies and help them um, prepare for Russian invasion. And that includes working with stay-behind units, which would work behind the Russian lines and to help, help them win the war. Um, that's, that's been going on for a long time. Let's talk about your career. Um, tell us like some of the assignments that you had during your your uh, special forces and CIA career as much as you can. 
I mean, we'd like to talk to uh, tell readers about what what uh, a CIA officer, a Green Beret officer, and a CIA officer might might uh, be doing should they sign up. Well, I, I did not start out to be an officer. Actually, I enlisted as a private uh, in 1973, and it was a long time before I decided to move up into the officer world. In fact, I kind of. I did not want to because once you become an officer, you sort of lose control of your career. Um, so I, right. I, I, yeah, I, I trained for a while as an infantryman. I was with the 82nd Airborne Division, a, a straight infantry unit. And then I moved over into Special Forces, completed the training, luckily enough, um, and then joined a conventional Special Forces unit. I call it conventional because they wore uniforms all the time. And out of that uh, experience, I came to Berlin um, and spent uh, uh, four years in Berlin, came back to the States for a while, actually did some instruction at the Special Forces School, and then actually went back to Berlin. So the majority of my career was preparing for World War III with Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. And how is it that you ended up with CIA? Well, in 1989, I came back to the States and I was working with a unit uh, which will remain nameless, a U.S. Army unit. And we worked quite a bit with the agency. Uh, So I got about... um, five or six years of good exposure to what the agency was doing, um, more tradecraft training. And I, I had learned a lot in Berlin, obviously. We were taught by the agency when I was there. But in this new unit, um, I was working directly with the agency quite a bit. So when I retired, I was looking for... I was looking for a job, really, and uh, one day I got contacted and said, um, we'd like to interview you for a possible job, and I really had no idea what it was, but um, I went and talked to them, and it turned out to be the CIA, and they said, would you like to work for us? I said, yeah. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> um, I, was no, I, I, I want, did not want to be unemployed, so... And it was a good opportunity. So I actually worked as a contractor with the agency for a couple of years. Uh, they said, we've got a place that we need a representative and nobody's there. Uh, would you go there for us? And I said, yes. Later on, I became a traditional staff officer within. And I don't mean working on the staff. I mean a staff employee um, what, what we call a blue badger instead of a green badger, um, and was working as a traditional case officer. So I, I spent uh, 13 years with the agency and 23 years with the Army. A lot of interesting places, a lot of travel, um, working everything from counterterrorism targets to the hard targets like Russia, um, not North Korea, because I could never get close to a North Korean. Um, working counterproliferation, which is nuclear issues, um, things like that. I, I enjoyed my, my career with the Army and, and the agency. 
Let's talk about being a case officer uh, and, and, and how that works. A case of, uh, often people say, well, he was a CIA spy or so, and that's not really accurate, is it? Uh, uh, what a CIA operations officer does uh, in the espionage realm is to uh, reach out to foreigners and get them to turn coat and to spy on, on their own government or on other targets for us. Um, and this involves spotting likely people likely to have secrets um, and uh, recruiting them and then managing them as spies. Um, those, those are very different skills for different kinds of uh, capability of the different officers. Were you particularly good at one of those or the other? Uh, managing, <laughs> recruiting, managing, what? Yeah, the, the first thing you talk about is the terminology. And you're quite correct. Uh, CIA officers are not spies, except when the Russian government accuses them of being a spy. No, they're not. They're intelligence officers. And in the agency, you're either called an operations officer or you're called a case officer. Essentially the same thing. Um, you handle cases. The cases being the spies that you are recruiting. Um, I mean, they have also other skills, technical officers, what Q represents for MI6 and James Bond movies. You have analysts who take all the information that the spies produce and turn it into a report. All kinds of other people. But the case officers was, um, that was the area I was working in. What did you like about it? <laughs> well, I, I would not be, I would not, qualified myself as one of the stellar recruiters. I, I could do the work. Um, I don't say, I don't think I had any earth-shattering recruitments, but in reality, most of us don't have earth-shattering recruitments because when you, when you get somebody to work for you to spy on their country, most of the time those people are looking for an outlet. Uh, they have some motivation, whether it be money or anger, resentment. Most spies actually volunteer, and the recruiter mm -hmm. just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Um, it was enjoyable because you get to work with people, and before too long you start to recognize people that, yeah, they they might be loyal to their government, but they've got something that tells you they want to share information with you. And that that chase is interesting. But I think where I excelled actually was not in the recruitment, but in the handling of an agent. I had a number of people have difficult agents that they were working with, could not get them to produce. Um, they could not relate to them, and I was able to go in and take over uh, for them hmm. and turn things around a number of places. And that comes down to being able to recognize what makes a person tick, to have empathy with what they need, what they want, and then to get them to be able to turn that around so they want to work for you. And some people don't have the patience to do that. that that's... You know, they might enjoy the recruitment part, but the actual handling, they say, well, that's tedious. That's, that's like being a school teacher and working with kids, you know. You actually have to listen to them, <laughs> and, and they don't want to do that. So <laughs> the handling part is what I really enjoyed. 
And, and and likewise, there are some case officers who are great at sizing up a, a target, developing the personal relationship with him, but just can't quite pitch the target. There's, it's just too scary because they're, they're afraid it's going to blow up in their face. Uh, some Russian, some Chinese, some North Korean um, diplomat in Africa. Um and they're, and they're just afraid it's going to blow up in their face. So uh, CIA will send in someone who's a specialist on making the pitch, right? Yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, I mean, I know, I know I know the issue. Um, I did approach a North Korean once, cold pitch, knew he spoke English, went and talked to him. And the only thing he did was look at me for about one second, and he turned around and walked away. He knew <laughs> I was an American. He knew what I wanted. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it can be frustrating. Just as a sidebar on that, uh, one former CIA officer in a memoir wrote that uh, one hook into the North Koreans uh, in in uh, in their diplomatic outposts and in, in Africa was that they like pornography. Uh, so, uh, this particular ex CIA officer, uh, while he was in CIA offered, uh, uh, you know, set up, I think he set up kind of a porno shop and North Koreans began, uh, uh, you know, frequenting it. And he suddenly had a hook into these guys. <laughs> uh, well, there was a similar, a similar thing in Africa. We knew the North Koreans were working with smugglers, uh, trying to get ivory out of the country and back to North Korea because that's how they fund their government is they get this, mm. the illegal substances. So we, we tried to set up a sting on them and working with the local government, and we set up one of their guys and did an approach saying, we know what you're doing, we have the evidence. And he basically said, so what? Huh. And the next day, the next day he was gone, uh, disappeared. He went back home. So some things work and some things don't. <laughs> we have to step away for a second. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back now. In your experience, were, were Russians vulnerable to recruitment or did they volunteer? Did you come across volunteers? Hard targets, Russians, Chinese? I was never lucky enough to have a volunteer Russian. Uh, I w would have loved to, but uh, you know, most most of the time they are also back then at least. And and I'm talking about the mid nineties. They they some of them were disappointed with how things had turned out in Russia, but they still had a very strong ideology. Uh, I think that may have changed today. Um, there's a lot more discontentment with Putin, uh, so it may be easier. Uh, I can't speak to it now. But, uh, so back then, it was still, that's why they call it a hard target, because it's extremely difficult to get close to them. But we could, especially in Africa. Um, that was one of the most lucrative places to find people, because it was also one of the places where the Russians had the loosest controls over their people. And they could get out and they could move around. Uh, so the they were available. Um, the East German were also available. 
uh, but then that, of course, stopped in 1990. We uh, let's 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 turn to, to the Russians in in Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians have have had spectacular success uh, from the get go in slowing the Russian invasion and hamstringing it, and then fighting them to a standstill, uh, evicting evicting the Russians from many areas of Ukraine, and then fighting them to a standstill. Uh, given your long time, vast experience vis-a-vis the Russians and Eastern Europe and Ukraine, uh, how do you see this uh, unfolding over the next uh, 12 months? It's going to be a difficult uh, road, road to hoe, I think, uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, they have done a magnificent job given what they have, uh, giving their resources. And I put a lot of that credit um, on the fact that they have revised how they look at warfare. They they have taken the lessons that they received from the British and the American advisors that they've had up till about 2014, 2015, and they've integrated that into their systems. That and the fact that they've gotten a lot of equipment from the West that is far superior to the Russian equipment. Uh, they've got a lot of Russian equipment, that's true, but they've also got a lot of our American anti-armor, anti-aircraft, um, and electronic warfare uh, capabilities, which have done them very good. That said, the Russians are learning, uh, especially in the area of electronic warfare. They're learning how to subdue the Ukrainian systems. They're learning how to protect their aircraft a bit better. But they they are still they are still having serious problems. I mean, <clears throat> the Russians have lost approximately ninety percent of what their original army was when they went into Ukraine. And so they've had to recruit uh, a lot of people. That means they're not as well trained. Uh, but they have the, the Russian advantage lies in its logistical capabilities. And if they can, if they can survive, and if they can adapt and get enough equipment, and they can continue to pressure the Ukrainians, uh, and and they will. So the next year is going to be very difficult. The basis of your novel, Dead Hand, is that the Russians score a victory in Ukraine. Um, Given the machinations of American politics right now, um, uh, much needed aid for Ukraine is up in the air. I I think it'll probably eventually be passed, but uh, maybe not soon enough. do you do you still do you foresee a Russian victory in Ukraine? I think that what I saw about a year and a half ago led me to write the book. Um, that the the operation is so tenuous on both sides that they could easily Ukraine could easily be overcome if something happened. I postulated it's a big word and I'm not sure what it means. I postulated that the that the Ukrainians would become desperate because of one thing or another. And in their desperation, they carry out an act which forces their Western allies to lose confidence in them. And with that, the Russians are able to overcome Ukraine. Now, what I said was just one factor. There could be another one. There could be several that 
the force you know, the political situation in the United States. They lose support of the United States, then the English, then the French, the Germans, and even the Poles might say, wait a minute, um, maybe this isn't going the way we want to. And if Russia can move in and take over, then obviously uh, all bets are off. Uh, Putin, I think, does not intend to stop with Ukraine. He's looking at Moldova, he's looking at the Baltics, he's looking at the Imperial Russian Empire and saying, that's what I want. I want to reestablish those borders. And I think he's going to try it. Well, on that dire note, <laughs> we have to wrap it up. I, I sure hope that people will find their way to dead hand uh, your really startling, uh, fast-paced uh, thriller that... Uh, kind of rides on the outcome of the war in Ukraine and it's really kind of a frightening scenario. Um, uh, thank God it's only fiction for now. Uh, so we'll have to see how things uh, turn out. Are you sure about that, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sure about a lot of things these days. <laughs> but I'm so glad to have you on the show, James. Thanks for spending your time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out the spytalk.co news site on Substack where we offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses on the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Just Google Spy Talk or hey, use AI and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced, as always, by Kanai and edited by Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. So, have a great week. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.